This morning, we welcome John Barber to Hooray for Hollywood. John is an actor, comedian, television host, and is the only performer in TV to win Emmys for both entertainment and news shows. John is also uh, known as one of the hosts of the NBC reality television series, Real People, for which he was also a creator and co-producer way back in the glorious 70s. John uh, won the first of his five Emmys as the original host of AMLA, where he interviewed the great, near great, and I guess some merely grating, John, we'll talk about that. He was one of the first, if not the first, in the U.S., uh, United States to review films as part of the local news program. In the process, chalking up three consecutive Emmys as KNBC's critic at large. He has just come out with a book on his peripatetic career called Your Mother's Not a Virgin, The Bumpy Life and Times of the, and the Canadian Dropout Who Changed the Face of American TV. John, welcome to the show today. Oh, oh, Tom, thank you. Thank you so much. And listening to that introduction made me a little nervous because it sounded like a guy who couldn't hold the job. <laughs> well, I mean, that's, I think that's kind of part of it. I, you know, I, I, you know, I read a little bit and, and it, you, you said you were a high school dropout with sort of a cruel upbringing. And then and you, you know, you persisted, you persevered and you had this career that's really amazing and so many facets of it. Uh, you, you've just worked in, in all kinds of various media and uh, it's really amazing over your, your uh, 86 years. Now, now, what was the deal with the home life? You're a high school dropout. Tell me about that. What happened and what, what started you on your career? I, I uh, was born in the Salvation Army Charity Ward in Toronto, Canada, and uh, my family would have had to be completely mended in order to be just called dysfunctional. And uh, when I was six years of age, at the age of uh, uh, 1939 was the year, when I was six years, said, you told folks how old I am. To get away from our house, my father joined the Canadian Army to go to the peace and quiet of World War II, and I was six before I realized my name wasn't, that's enough. And after, after, after my father left, my mother brought uncles into the house like they were grapes. They came in bunches, and they came mostly to bed with her or booze with her, but frankly, mostly to beat her. And you know, when you're a young kid like that, Tom, uh, and you can't protect your mother, you find yourself running to the cops a lot. And also, sometimes the cops ran after me a lot, because when you come from a background like that, everybody wants attention, everybody wants to be loved. But with a background like that, you don't end up doing good things like playing a concert violin or a piano. You end up getting into trouble, which I did, uh, which I did constantly. So I was on the streets mostly when I was six to... Uh, 15. And I dropped out of uh, high school uh, after the first year when I realized my father was never going to come home again. And I became a compulsive, addicted gambler at that age of 15. And Tom, everything I could make selling papers or working in little confectionery stores or stealing, all of which I was very adept at, I would lose in all night sessions on a weekend. And after about a year and a half, I said to myself, you know, I'm not here to make uh, uh, money. I'm here to make friends. But who wants to be friends with these kind of people? So knowing the library was right across from the police station, I went and I got two books and I can remember them to this day. John Scarnian cards and John Scarnian dice. And I memorized them. And in 1950, in two months, I won $700. Now, that's nothing today, but in those days, that was a lot of money. And if you look at the the picture of me, that black and white picture of me in the cover of the book, there's me in that beautiful suit that I bought. I'm standing in front of the Bugsy Siegel Flamingo Hotel, and I bought a Stetson because I was only 17 at the time, and I left Canada with that 700 bucks after buying the suit to go to Vegas to become a professional gambler. That was my dream, to make a lot of money as a gambler. And in northern Nevada, now this is how, you know, 
all the magnificent and wonderful things that have happened to me, Tom. I mean, getting real people on the air accidentally, getting the AM show accidentally, becoming Frank Sinatra's private writer for four years accidentally, all happened by accident, as if it's divine intervention. But all the things that were just disasters were the things that were well-planned. Anyway, I'm on the train in northern Nevada, and there's some kind of accident, and the train stops. Now, this guilty kid thinks that the immigration authorities or the Toronto police have called ahead to Union Pacific and said, we got to get this Joey Barber. So I jumped off the train, got on the bus, and ended up in front of the Cal Neva Lodge in Lake Tahoe. Now, yeah. for a kid of 17, you look at this beautiful gambling chalet. It looked like a set out of a Nim Jim musical. And I walked in looking for Mickey Rooney and Judy Garland. So I went to the end of the table. I bought myself a Stetson so I would look older. And I started to play craps. And people started to look at me because they were a lot older than I was. And I thought, oh, my God, they can tell I'm young. They're going to call the cops or security. Then I realized they were looking behind me, Tom. So I turned around to see what they were staring at. And in through the front glass doors comes Frank Sinatra with his overcoat draped over his shoulder like an Italian Superman. He is arm in arm, Tom, with Sam Giancana, who was a mafia chieftain of Chicago. And the reason I knew that it was the front page story in the paper I left in the train for the for the cops oh, to find. And Tom, one week earlier, you might remember the film. It was Jerome Curran's story called his yeah. And the very last scene in that film is Sinatra on a white pedestal in a white tuxedo singing Old Man River. Old Man River. Right. That's River. it. And then yeah. here he comes walking past me. And little did I know. The 25 years later, I would meet him again and become his friend and writer for four and a half years. And those John, things. Yes. No, John, I wanted to ask you about that. Like, what, I mean, what were you writing for Sinatra? I mean, you know, not songs. I mean, what the, what the heck were, is a personal writer for Frank Sinatra? What, uh, mostly, mostly it was jokes and mostly it was letters to the editor. Do you know the uh, Kitty Kelly book, uh, His oh, Way? Yeah. He well, if you, if you read that book, she references a very nasty, funny letter that he wrote to People magazine. You're talking to the author of that letter. And when, uh, and when Hubert Humphreys got cancer and they were having a tribute to him, I wrote the five-page speech which was the hit of the evening. And the interesting thing about this, whether I wrote one joke for him or I wrote a letter to the editor, he would send me 10 brand new $100 bills. That's $1,000 in those days. And I told him I would do it for nothing. I said, why don't you just send me one check and I can frame it and put it on the wall. And he said, I don't do anything for nothing. I only go top gear. And there's a really interesting story about that. When you get to the the, uh, column in the book or the chapter in the book about the gong show, because I was a first host of the gong show. Yeah, the pilot host of that. Yeah, and the first one, gong. But the the, uh, business manager for uh, Chuck Barris was Frank Sinatra's publicist shortly after Sinatra thought about committing suicide. Uh, and, uh, you know, he had lost Ava and he had lost his voice for six months. And mm-hmm. he and this kid at the time was only like in his 20s, but he was the hotshot publicist in the business and very famous. And Sinatra called him and said, I want to make a, a comeback and I need the best in the business. He met with Sinatra and he so liked Sinatra and he'd always been a fan of his. He said, I'll do it for half price. And Sinatra said, to hell you will. He said, I don't do anything half price. I'm paying you full price, even though I can't afford it. And he paid the wow. guy full price. And then, of course, Sinatra got from here to eternity and made that enormous uh, comeback. The stories in the book are absolutely yeah. phenomenal. 
Yeah, yeah, that's what I've heard. I mean, oh, just following the Sinatra angle a little bit, then it, it was like 20 years or whatever since you saw him coming to Calneva. What? How did you uh, get? You know, how did you get with him to be his writer? What was the circumstance? Uh, well, what a great question! What a great question! As, as you mentioned, I was the first uh, a person on television news to review films. Do you remember a uh, a movie called Great Gatsby with Robert Redford? Oh, absolutely. Right. Uh, okay. It was produced by Phyllis Diller. I mean, Brad, <laughs> Barry Diller. I call him Barry, but he's more of a Phyllis. Yeah, no relation Brad. to Phyllis, right. Yeah, but he, he wishes he was. Anyway, he was president of Paramount. He is yeah. the one that funded uh, uh, the Great uh, Gatsby. And uh, at that time... It only costs $3 to go to a movie. And yeah. Paramount put so much money into this. They got the cover of Time Magazine, the uh, Newsweek. They were having Gatsby parties all over Hollywood. And he said that they have bought a clothing company in New York, and they're going to make an additional fortune selling clothing. And besides that, they were going to double the price of the uh, movie because it was so good to $6. Well, of course, I go to see the film. And it's terrible. I mean, it's photographed. Yeah, it's a bomb, right? It, yes, it was a bomb. But everybody raved about it except yours truly. I mean, Jack Clayton was the director and cinematographer. It looked nice, but they told the yeah. story wrong. Uh, and I don't want to get into why they told the story wrong, but I did in the sure. review. So at the end of the review, I said, the only way Barry Diller is going to get $6 for this movie is if they charge three to get in and three to get out. Well, <laughs> that joke went all around town, and I got a and the movie popped, and I got a call from George Slaughter. George Slaughter was the co-creator and owner of Laugh-In. Yeah, right. Laugh-In, as you well know, was this monumental comedy show, three great comedy shows in American history, Colgate Comedy Hour with Martin and Lewis, Sid Caesar's show of shows, and then, of course, laughing. But it only lasted right. three years because Slaughter and his ego, uh, he got in these horrible bad battles with Rowan and Martin because people thought it was Rowan and Martin's show, and the show went off after three years. Anyway, uh, NBC, he had made a deal with NBC to do four revivals of laughing, and he wasn't going to have a host. Uh, he was going to have different people on it every week. Anyway, he called me. He said, John, can I buy that joke and a bunch of others? And I said, well, it's in the L.A. magazine. You know, I'm the critic for L.A. magazine. Take whatever you want for nothing. And then he says to me, you know, the, you're the critic at large. And nothing on laughing is more than like eight or ten seconds. He said, why don't you come here, be a writer, I'll pay you a scale. You can be our critic at large on the show. And so myself and Digby Wolf, the actual creator of Laugh-In, and George, the three of us wrote these four specials in which I appeared on the air, and that's the show that introduced Robin Williams. Anyway, when, when they tape these shows, Tom, there is no audience. It's all canned laughter. So I hear that Sinatra is going to be booked to be on the show, and I haven't seen it for 20 years. I'm like 44 at the time, so I come into the theater and sit in the very back. I don't want to get close to him because he has a very tough reputation. So he comes on stage with three or four guys in suits, and Digby and George are on the stage. They're ready to uh, tape him doing anything that he likes. George hands him some jokes, and Sinatra looks at them, crumples up the paper, and who wrote this crap? Who wrote this crap? Only it was a lot of... Okay, so after George runs out of paper, and it's all over the floor, Digby hands him a sheet of paper. And there are a bunch of funny jokes about New Jersey and some guy in prison being auditioned by the Democrats to become the next candidate for governor. And Sinatra loved it. And he said, who wrote this stuff? So Digby points up at me and he says, Johnny, Sinatra turns and he looks up at me and he crooks his finger like, come here. And he says, come here, kid. That calls me kid. I'm 44. I've, I'm, I'm, I'm so nervous leaping down the stairs to meet him. And then he says to me, hold it. You're that guy on Tom Snyder. You're the movie critic. You write for LA Magazine. 
I knew he hated a guy named Rex Reed. Do you remember Rex Reed? Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, okay, right. that's right. Very, the most popular in the country in print. Right. So I said to Mr. Sinatra, that's too, I'm known around town as the heterosexual Rex Reed. Well, he just howled. And then <laughs> Digby says to him, you know, he has an album called It's Tough to be White, and Dick Gregory did the liner notes. And Sinatra said, are you kidding? And I said, yeah. He said, get it to me. I want to show it to Sammy. I said, oh, oh sir, no, it it bombed. It bombed. LA, LA Times just bombed it. He said, all the more reason, kid, that I want to see it. So he gave me his, his secretary's name was Dorothy. His offices were at Formosa Studios. He said, you get it over there. The next day, I messengered over. I thought I would never hear from Sinatra again the rest of my life. I didn't care. Two days later, I got a hand-delivered letter, which is reproduced in the book, and the only thing, one of the only letters hanging in my office, and he tells me, you are now mine, and we're going to do a lot of stuff together. So anyway, one, one day, uh, I, now I'm 46 years of age. I, I was fired from the AEM show after winning my first Emmy because I tried to book District Attorney Jim Garrison on the show. Do you remember who Garrison was? Yeah, I remember that name. I've, I've heard of it. Was that the part of the uh, JFK? That's right. Kevin Costner yeah. played him in Oliver Stone's wonderful yeah, movie. Yes. Yeah, okay. Right. Now, okay. Now I'm hosting the show in 1970, and Garrison lost the case. He took Clay shot a trial on January 29th, 1969. And why did I remember that date? There you go. Divine intervention and accidents. That's the birth date of my son. Mm-hmm. So anyway, he loses what is called the conspiracy case against Clay Shaw. And I had forgotten all about it. And you know, I believe the government when they say the guy's a kook. Mm-hmm. And uh, you lose the case. 1970, I got this monster hit show. I'm in a bookstore one day and I pick up a book called Heritage of Stone. And the author is Jim Garrison. And I thought, mm-hmm. holy smokes, is that the same guy? Tom, I stayed in the bookstore and read it. And I learned stuff I never heard from the media. And Donald Trump is right when he talks about fake news. I said, I didn't know that he had to see Time Life to get the Zapruder film. And the Supreme wow. Court ruled in his favor. There was yeah. a uh, forensic pathologist named Fink called to the trial uh, who said there was no autopsy. It was presented by uniforms and suits. And he said they weren't even allowed to look at photographs or x-rays, so we don't know where the bullet struck him. And if you get the Warren report, you find out no pictures, no x-rays, just a cartoon drawing, pencil drawing of a bullet going through the back of Kennedy said. So it's total nonsense. So I call him to book him on the show. And uh, he says, you'll never get away with it. They'll never put me on television. I said, well, we're live, sir. We're live. I've just won an Emmy. I got the show is so popular that Ronald Reagan, when he was running for governor, came to my show and not the Today Show. So he reluctantly agrees to do it because it is live and people are going to phone him with phone calls. And he said to me, and this is where the title of the book came from. He said, John, you know, it's 1976 years after the Warren report. Do you know that the Gallup poll yesterday said that 81% of all Americans after six years do not believe that Lee Harvey Oswald could have done this alone or at all. So I said, well, if it's 81%, sir, why are people on the streets? And he started to chuckle. He had the greatest laugh. He said, well, I, I haven't told you about the second question. And I said, what's the second question? And he said, the second question is to people. Would you like to see another fuller investigation of the murder of John Kennedy? Only this time they investigate the CIA and the FBI. And he said only 23 percent said yes. So what does that tell us about Americans? And I this is I don't know where it came from, Tom. I just blurted out, Mr. Garrison. I know what my mother and father did in the rumble seat of the car, on the pool table, in the bedroom to concede me. But don't ever tell me 
my mother's not a virgin. Well, he howled. And he said, you know, John, that sounds that sounds like my favorite American writer, Mark Twain, who said yeah. it's easier to fool people than to convince them they have been fooled. And yeah. Mark Twain was a cat lover, as was Garrison. And he said to me, you know what Mark Twain said about cats? I said, no. He said, Mark Twain said, what is the difference between a cat and a lie? A cat only has nine lives. I mean, that is genius. So anyhow, I'm fired. I book him and I'm fired immediately. But I must tell you, Tom, I'm not into conspiracies. I'm just a storyteller. And I wanted to tell his story. I wasn't allowed to. And in show business, you don't have a job for more than a week or 13 weeks. I mean, when I was the opening act, I was the opening act for Robert Goulet and Bobby Darren in Vegas. And you work two weeks and that's it. So I ended up being a critic. But when I got together with Mr. Sinatra, mm -hmm. he called me into his office. Well, I'm a critic. I, and my, uh, my son is about nine or ten years of age at this time. And I'd never wanted a child. I never wanted a child because I didn't know what kind of father I would be. Would I be an alcoholic right. like my mother and father? Would I be a kid? Yeah. I, and, and just to please my wife, she wanted a child. I let her have a child, and it changed my life. It gave me a life. I mean, I had a career, but my mm -hmm. purpose was my son. And so in any event, Sinatra calls me into his office in Formosa. He never had any plaques or pictures up on the wall. He dressed with a casual yellow sweater. He was just the sweetest, gentlest man. And he asked me to go on the road with him. And I said, well, I said, I can't. He said, you listen, you're only making 450 bucks a week over at NBC. You'll get thousands and people will know who you are all around the country. And I said, Mr. Sinatra, my father abandoned me when I was a kid. And I know nothing but the pain of my childhood. I now have a nine-year-old son. And I am not going to go anywhere that would take me away from my son. And I said, he's like, he's going to be a professional golfer, I think, because he wins all these junior golf tournaments. And it's just a joy for me to drive him around. And I have to turn you down. And Sinatra almost cried. You could almost see tears come to his eyes. And he wow. said, that's nice. Then he said, but what are we going to do? And I said to him, you know what we're going to do? What, what I'd love to do? He said, what? I said, I'd love to do an Italian roots. And he said, what are you talking about? I said, remember the ABC series uh, roots? Kunta Kinte and his origins in Africa. I said, I would like to come to your house in Palm Springs every weekend, put a camera on you for months and just have you tell the story of your life while I ask you questions. And I said, in the final product, you would never hear my questions. You'd never see me. In other words, you'd be telling Mr. Sinatra rather than in print your autobiography, you'd be the first, first person in America or in the world to do a visual autobiography of your life. And we'll have five hours. America will shut down every night. And he was thrilled. He said, oh, my God, that sounds fantastic. And what kind of questions would you ask? I said, you know, you will own the tapes. But, you know, as we get along, I'm going to tell you the first time I saw you. He said, what was it the first time you saw me? Wasn't it on laptop? I said, no, I was at 17 at the Calumet Lodge when you walked in with Sam Giancana. And he stopped and stared at me. He said, are you kidding? Because at that time, he was denying to the Nevada gaming board that he knew any of these gangsters. And I said, yes, I can recreate it. It's videotaped in my mind forever. And he said to me, he said, Johnny, you got balls. And I said, well, sir, you know, I have to ask you these questions, but you're in charge of it all. You'll edit it out. He said, when can we start? Drop, give me a presentation, leave it with Dorothy. He mm -hmm. called me two days after he got the presentation and said, when can we start? And I said, I don't know. And he said, what do you mean you don't know? I said, I just got an accidental order to do four specials on NBC with uh, George Slaughter called Real People. 
And I've been trying to get this on the air for years. So I never got around to doing that with Sinatra. Oh, geez. Well, I mean, you changed the face of television. I mean, uh, you know, it was really one of the first reality TV shows, if not the first ever filmed. And uh, it was. I want to ask you, you, John, what I mean, now that reality TV is just, you know, ascendant. I mean, it's everywhere. You got the Kardashians. You have so much reality TV. Uh, What do you think? I mean, you, you started it all. What do you think of most of reality TV, you know, circa 2020? I mean, what that, that, Tom, that, Tom, that Tom is a very profound and important question. And I'll tell you very honestly, I was not the godfather of reality TV for uh, creating real people. This is how strong real people was. There were three networks, ABC, NBC, and CBS. We used to get a 50 share, half of everybody for two years watching television, watch that show. We got 20,000 pieces of mail a week. I always figured if if I had an audience on uh, an entertainment show that was a real show and I came across real stories, then I should tell them three real stories we told. Mm-hmm. The reason there was a Vietnam Memorial Wall in Washington, D.C. is because of me. I did a story because the wall, nobody wanted the wall built. It was an unpopular war. 68,000 right. American soldiers were literally murdered by Lyndon Johnson, sending them there illegally. It was designed by an Asian-American woman, so there's another two strikes. And I found a professor in New Mexico whose son was killed seven days after going to Vietnam. And he built a private memorial for his son on top of a hilltop in New Mexico. It was such a smash story that I got a call from Senator Utah of, uh, uh, Senator Udall of Utah. He asked me for 50 copies so he could send it to every senatorial office. And 90 days later, they approved the wall. You've heard of uh, John Walsh, America's Most Wanted? Sure, sure. I was the one who told his story on Real People when his son had been kidnapped at a mall and beheaded. And he went around television trying to get a Missing Children's Act passed so that the FBI and local police stations would cooperate in searching for missing children. And they all turned him down. They wanted to do their own thing. And I saw his story. I told it on the air. Sixty days later, they passed the Missing Children's Act. I have a letter from John thanking me. I got the Navajo Code Talkers, a presidential citation. Now, in three years, in three years, Tom, we did more for America in television than 60 Minutes did in 35 years. Now, to your question, real people was like a fine wine. It was one of a kind. But if you leave wine out a long time, it turns to vinegar. When I got into television, you had to have a modicum of talent. You had a modicum of intelligence. You had to have a personality. You had to have all of those things. And there were hundreds of people in television with those qualities. If you had those qualities today, you could not be hired in American television. What to be a star in American television today, like the Kardashians or whoever, or the Beverly Hills Housewives, to be a star is to only have an absence of shame. It's shock TV. It's uh, it is. It's like a car accident. Everything's yeah. like a visual car accident. It is absolutely disgraceful. And the reason American television is so bad, and one of the really interesting about the books. Is you know that when John Kennedy was murdered, there were 1,500 different owners of television stations in America, radio stations. Yeah. And, but because of Bill Clinton, the very worst president of the history of the United States, he signed NAFTA, which sent the jobs overseas. He repe- repealed Glass-Steagall, which allowed Wall Street to gamble and create that 2008 recession. But worse. In the 1990s, he, had, he passed the Communications Act, putting 95% of all of America's media in the hands of five major corporations doing business with the government. That is not freedom of the press. And I must tell you, 
the First Amendment of the United States Bill of Rights is more important than any president in history. Because when a president takes office, he swears to uphold the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. The Bill of Rights and Constitution are not upholding the president of the United States. So I'm waiting for Donald Trump, who probably win in 2020 because the Democrats so stupidly tried to impeach him, for Christ's sake. He was the least impeachable president since the murder of John Kennedy. I mean, Lyndon Johnson should have been impeached over Vietnam. Both of the Bushes should have been impeached over Iran in Iraq. And Clinton over Waco. Over Waco alone. But Trump made a bad phone call. And I knew that the Democrats were handing Trump the keys to the White House for as long as he wants. But he, strangely enough, one of the reasons I made the second film, which is, and I became the Boswell to Jim Garrison. When, when Oliver Stone was making JFK, he wanted to do a documentary follow-up, and Jim turned him down. He says, no, John Barber, because John lost two of the greatest shows in television trying to tell my story. So that's how I came to be, became his Boswell. But I didn't do the second film until I saw Donald Trump running for president. And he brought up the business of fake news. I thought, oh, my God, he sounds like Jim Garrison. And I interviewed Garrison September 5th, 1981. So I took out all the tapes and looked at them again. I said, my God, Garrison sounds like Trump. So that's why I made the film, and I'm telling you something, Tom. It is a monster runaway word-of-mouth hit on Amazon. It only costs $2. I'll never get back the money I made. But it is the absolute definitive film on the murder of John Kennedy, which was solved by Jim Garrison because it's now a cold case locked up in the Justice Department. And it tells the story of the rise and the purpose of fake news which we're yeah. under to this very day. So I'm waiting for Trump in 2020 when he gets his second term to repeal the Communications Act and give a free press back to the American public. Well, we'll stay tuned for that. I, uh, you know, the, the, the movie you're speaking about is called The Garrison Tape. No, uh, that that is no. free. You can watch that on my site. The movie I'm talking about, which is on Amazon and Vivio, Oh, okay. It's only been out two years, and it's a monster hit. It's called The American Media and the Second Assassination of President John F. Kennedy. And it should be required viewing. Every critic has said it should be required viewing by every person in the United States, especially those in school. So, yeah. But I'm, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not in it to make money. I'm just a storyteller. I'm not a conspiracy theorist or anything like that. America's has three great stories to tell. One is the American Revolution. And Thomas mm-hmm. Jefferson said we should have a revolution every 20 years. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the film, John Kennedy says, those who do not allow a peaceful revolution invite a violent one. And, you know, America has never been as divided as they are now. America is more divided now Tom, than in the 60s when people were getting bloodied on the streets. Yeah, civil rights and uh, anti-war stuff. Right, right. right. Yeah, but you remember, Tom, in those days, there was always a feeling of hope in the air. I remember it. And, you know, I don't see much hope around. It's very, very disheartening to me. I mean, once in a while I go... I go on... Polarized, unfortunately. That's right. Polarized and... Hopefully that will, you know, we'll find a way out of that. We'll find a way. Yes, we, you know, uh, as the Bible says, this too shall pass and it will pass and the business of the virus will pass and we'll all survive. We're all like cockroaches. We'll survive any kind of disaster. But anyway, I wanted to. Yeah, I sure. wanted to ask you about uh, all these great people you interviewed when uh, you, you know, you're doing your various shows, uh, Muhammad Ali, Cesar Chavez, Reagan, Jane Fonda. Who is the most interesting that you uh, or, or the most unique or uh, of, of all these people that you've interviewed? And you've interviewed so many people and you've worked with so many people. You mentioned Sinatra, but <clears throat> were there any others that that 
you thought you know something. I must tell you they were all unique and outstanding in various ways. If you go to my site, you know Kirk Douglas just died mm-hmm. a couple of weeks yeah. ago. When I was doing a local live show in Los Angeles, Kirk Douglas called and asked to be on the show. Kirk Douglas was one that the one that broke the blacklist when he made yeah. Spartacus. Uh, he hired Dalton Trumbull. He had hired Dalton Trumbull, who had already won an Academy Award under a fictitious name. And Kirk had written a book, and he wanted to come on and talk about it. And mine was the most popular show in L.A. He he came on the show. Oh my God! You go to my site, or you just Google John Barber uh, interviews Kirk Douglas. It's only been up a, a while. We got along so well, and he talked about the fact that he never enjoyed his rise to success because he was so hungry to be a star. He never stopped to smell the rose. I mean, it's a great interview. We got along so well, he forgot to mention his book. And I've been invited by all of these people to either come to lunch or to their place for dinner. Only two people I ever accept the invitation, Kirk Douglas and Jane Fonda. Jane Fonda was known as Hanoi Jane, who was violently opposed to the Vietnam War. And I told her, I can't side with you because we have a fairness doctrine in this country, which we no longer have, by the way, uh, uh, thanks to to the uh, fact that uh, NBC had criminally tried to ruin Jim Garrison's investigation. He recorded it all. He got it all on tape. And NBC should have lost their license and people should have gone to prison for it. But because of the fairness doctrine, he got late night on NBC. It's in the film talking about how Lee R.B. Oswald could not have killed the president. And it was a central intelligence agency. The owners of the country look at that time and said, hold it. We can't have this kind of truth on TV. And the fairness yeah. doctrine goes away. So um, Jane Fonda. I taught her how to t- talk on television. I don't want to tell you the story now. Ronald Reagan, there's a great story about him because he didn't want to come on the air if I didn't give him the questions beforehand. Um, I'll t- that story is great. But I- Do we have time for me to tell you about Cesar Chavez, who I sure. never met, who did more for my career than anybody except, for, except Sinatra? Really? Yes. How, what did he do? I'll tell you what he did. The reason I got the show, the AM show, is because 20,000 Chicanos in the 1970s were protesting the license of KBC. Now, you could do that in those days. You can't do it anymore. You can't challenge any license because they're all owned by major corporations. But you could right. challenge them when they were owned by local local outlets. So they wanted more more representation on Channel 7 and in the police department and local government. And there was a Chicano Chicano moratorium march. I was the only person to put on the two young founders of the march. Amazing you bring this up, because here it's after all these years, I remember these names. Rosalia Munoz and Gonzalo Javier. In their 20s, they organized this march. The brightest man in L.A. who was a uh, popular and best-known Chicano was a fellow named Ruben Salazar. He was a columnist mm-hmm. for L.A. Times. Anyway, mm-hmm. uh, they marching on uh, City Hall, 20,000, and a riot breaks out. And they don't know how, how the riot started. Some say it was agent provocateurs. Others say it was uh, disgruntled Mexicans who started. Anyway, a cop fires up. Salazar, Salazar got killed, right? Wasn't he? That, that, that's it. He got hit in the head by a policeman's tear gas canister. And he right. dropped on the sidewalk. I'm so glad you brought that up because, you know, if this had happened to a black leader in Watts, Watts would have been burned to the ground. But it happened to Salazar. Nothing happened. Everybody, when his body hit the ground, the riot stopped. It just everything yeah. got quiet. So in any event, they arrest a guy named Corky Gonzalez and claim he starts the riot. I'm doing the morning show and uh, the trial of Corky Gonzalez is coming up and I get a call from guess who? Cesar Chavez. 
Now, Cesar, Cesar Chavez is the most important labor leader at the time in America, thanks to Bobby Kennedy's support when Bobby was running for the presidency. And he was trying to organize, as you remember, all the, the great boycotts and all the rest of it. Right. Now, the sidebar to this story is, when I interviewed Muhammad Ali, he tells a story about how it was a white man who was his hero as a kid and not a black man. That story's in the book. And Jane Fonda talking about the war, the Smothers Brothers, all these great guests. And John McMahon, the general manager of the station, always hated me. He hated me because I told him I would give him the number one show because I was going to do movie reviews. He told me not to do them because movies meant nothing. Television was what I should talk about. And I said, we live in the city that entertains the world with movies. So I did them because I was live. And we did right. become the number one, one show. Everything I and I he didn't want us to do open phone calls. So I said, we're going to do them. So we never got along. So when I had these great clips, Tom, he would never put them on the six o'clock news, even though Tom Irv, Irvine, who was the news director, kept asking for the clips. So when Ali was on the show, all these news people would come by and take him out in the alley and ask him questions that he'd heard me ask them. Okay. So anyway, I have to hire my own private publicist because ABC won't help. Cesar Chavez comes on the show. There are 40 people at seven o'clock in the morning in the studio behind the cameras. We have three cameras to do the show and only a staff of four people. They came from Reuters. They came from England. They came from Australia. Time and Life and Newsweek. I mean, just unbelievable. And and just at just at the last break, and he and I, my Cesar Chavez came in with two other guys just dressed like him, blue jeans and a plaid shirt. And he was not much bigger than me. He was a little huskier than I was. But he had the most beautiful face and brown eyes. So. In any event, we had this terrific interview. And during the break, I turned off the mics. And I'm telling you this, I feel as ashamed now as I did then by telling you this story. But it is the truth. I said to him, Mr. Chavez, I hate to ask you this. Could, could you do me a favor? And he never turned and he never answered me. So I kept talking and I said, you know, General uh, John McMahon, the general manager of the station, he does not like me. And when I had Muhammad Ali and Jane London, Smothers Brothers on, we had great sound clips. He would not show them on the six o'clock news. He'd just take the people outside and ask questions that he heard me ask. And I need you to do me a favor. He still never looked at me. And I now I felt ashamed. And I said, you know, I'm ashamed of what I'm saying now, but I can't help it. I feel like an egomaniacal Hollywood wannabe star. And that's not me, but I have to ask you this question. Now he turns and he looks at me. He doesn't speak, but his eyes say, go ahead, ask the question. So I said, you see all these people out here? They're waiting to take you out in front of a, an alleyway wall and ask you questions they probably never thought of, just questions that I'd ask you, or say maybe something they thought of. That's what they're going to do, and that's what they'll show in the 6 o'clock minutes. And he's just staring at it. He doesn't say a word. And I get feeling worse. And I said, when this is over, would you please tell them that you can't come and talk to them because you have a bad back from picking grapes? Well, oh, Jesus, Lord. I, oh, God, Tom, I could have cried. I felt so ashamed of myself. Oh, no. So anyway, the lights go off, and the news people literally push me away from Chavez. They drag my chair and push me away. And they're, all of them, they're grabbing and clutching at him. He stays seated, and he raises his hand and points the palm of his head at him like he's the Pope. And they all get quiet. And he says, ladies and gentlemen, I appreciate your being here, and I would love to come out and talk to each and every one of you. I wish I could, but I can't, because I have a very, very bad back from picking grapes. Oh, boy. And wow. McMahon had no choice but to run the clips of Cesar Chavez during the trial on my show 
which yeah. doubled the ratings. So he did more for me in 30 seconds than ABC did in an entire year. That's incredible. Hey, I want to ask you a, a, just a, a final question, John. Um, you, you've lived the, you know, like I said before, you've been in so many varied media, you know, writer, critic, gag writer, host, creator. I don't think that kind of a thing can be reproduced in this modern era, like I'm, I'm, I'm speaking from maybe the uh, point of view of a young person coming to LA or, or trying to make it in the uh, entertainment industry. Is there any kind of advice you would give, uh, you know, to a young person who's aspiring to be in the creative side of either news or entertainment that, that they might be able to follow? Tom, uh, you know, not the same path you did, just because well, I don't think that path exists anymore. But you are, you're right. That path no longer a- exists. And uh, I never, ever, ever give advice, even to my closest friends or my son. I will ask questions of them because Socrates, in uh, uh, one of the greatest philosophers of all times, never never instructed his students on anything. He just had met Plato. They just asked questions. And that's what I would do. But I will say this. Mm-hmm. America's greatest philosopher was a guy named Joseph Campbell who wrote a, a series called uh, The Power of Myth. Joseph mm-hmm. Campbell said, if you follow your joy... Doors will open in the universe that you did not know existed to help you in your uh, pursuit of that joy. And my joy always has been to be a storyteller because that's what kept me alive as a kid. And you want to know something, Tom? I never got on television to pursue fame or fortune. I got on television to try to find me. And because I didn't think I had a life, but everybody I talked to had these great lives. And I figured if I learned something from them about how they did it, maybe I would do it. And all of a sudden I was following my joy. You know, I'm 80, I'll be 87 in a month. And I play golf three times a week with guys who are half my age. You stay in the cart and drink beer. And I walk. And one of the reasons I am so healthy is because I am happy following my joy. Now, there is no more business like the business you and I know, but there is an internet. Do you know the greatest movie about an entertainer? The first, uh, at one time, the greatest documentary about an entertainer was the one I did about Ernie Kovacs called Ernie Kovacs Television's right. Original Genius, but it was replaced five years ago with a movie called Searching for Sugar Man. Do you remember it? Right. I, I did not see it, but I know of it when it uh, Oh, my God, yeah. Tom, you must see it. It is by yeah. far the most fantastic story of somebody in show business who should have been a star at 25 and didn't make it till he was in his 70s. It's phenomenal. In any event, the kid who did it is a European kid in his early 30s. And uh, he just wanted to do something with his life. And he had enough money to travel around the world. And he was looking for a story when he bumped into this story of this guy, this guy, Rodriguez, who made, made a great song in the 60s yeah. that nobody ever heard except right. South Africans. It became the national anthem for South Africa. And so this kid told the story and it won an Academy Award, but he shot 80 percent of it on his phone. So there are people out there. You could make a movie with your phone. And, you know, there are a lot of people on the Internet who have hundreds of thousands of viewers. I was on a show the other night. Wonderful show. Uh, A kid named Zachary is 42 years of age. He was not born when John Kennedy was killed. And he was not born when Hopper was killed. But he just is trying to inform his uh, the people he had 200,000 viewers and he's trying to inform them all the time about the day democracy died in America, November 22nd. He had me on the other day and because he had heard about me in the film. And you know, if, if whatever you, if whatever you're 
doing in your life if you follow what you love? I was never interested in money. I got into show. I got into television because of Jack Parr. He was the first and the best late night show host on the Tide Show, and right. he he opened every show with a monologue, and that's why I became a comedian. And I've always wanted to just do a talk show, and I got to do a lot of them. There's a great story in the book about how ABC gave me two weeks. I beat out Letterman. Procter and Gamble wanted to fund it, and ABC said no. He's too controversial. They were afraid I was going to put Garrison's Ghost in the air or whatever. So I've lived an unbelievable, accidentally blessed life. And I don't know where I came from. And one of the nice things about the book, remember, if you love show business stories about Bob Hope and Johnny Carson and Dean Martin, just Red Fox was my mentor. And when I, I was the first one to put him on television. All these great stories are in the book. Rodney Dangerfield, after he had retired when he was 44 years of age, they're all there. If you're interested in that, or as you've talked about the decline of the media in America, great stories in the book about that. I don't, I express yeah. no opinions. I just report the right. facts like Jack Webb. But most important, yeah. Tom, yeah. every day of my life from the time I was born, I heard no. No, no. And yet, look how successful and varied and interesting my life has become. And well, you know, Cary Grant, the greatest movie star that ever lived, and then, and then you have Charlie Chaplin, the greatest performer who ever lived for comedy. Their books about their lives is not one tenth as interesting as mine. <laughs> Well, the, the name of your book, the name of John's book, is Your Mother's Not a Virgin, The Bumpy Life and Time of the Canadian Dropout Who Changed the Face of American TV. John, thanks so much for being on the show today. It was really fun. And I'm telling you, you, uh, you still have that uh, knack for storytelling. You still got it. At the age oh, of well, Tom, th- thank you again, and thank John, your <laughs> engineer for putting us together so people can hear us i've had an absolutely wonderful time talking to you i'm on my way to canada for a week in toronto and then another week in new york and a couple of months i'd love to call you and do this again and we'll see what we can we'll see what we can do thanks so much again and uh happy travel thank you so much john okay. <laughs> thanks to john too thanks so much yeah. bye-bye